my dear friend Bill Bright on his deathbed was working on 50 projects for the sake of Jesus Christ the week the Lord took him home to be, to be with him at 81 years old. So here's Paul. He writes, he is expressing his heart to the elders at Miletus. And he says to you guys, listen, I want to finish the course well. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We've begun a look at the final verses in the book of 2 Timothy. The Apostle Paul on several occasions likened his ministry as running in a marathon. And he says in 1 Corinthians that he ran for the prize. He also likened himself to a boxer. As Pastor Carl continues his look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 beginning in verse 6 today, he encourages us to be like Paul who worked to the end furthering the kingdom of God. And what I like about Paul is he never quit. Now remember, Paul, when he spoke to the Ephesian elders, was already an old man. He wrote to Philemon six years before he wrote 2 Timothy, and he refers to himself as Paul the Aged. It'd be kind of like today, a a 70-year-old man standing on this platform and saying, Brethren, please, I want to finish the course that God has given me. I want to run well right to the end. I want to fulfill the ministry that the Lord has for me. Now, most men who are 70 are looking for a rocking chair. They're looking for an age of leisure. They're looking for a time to travel, to sit back and do nothing for God. And they say, my service is over. Let the next generation do it. When in reality, from God's perspective, the way you model for the next generation, what they ought to do is you live well right to the end. My dear friend Bill Bright on his deathbed was working on 50 projects for the sake of Jesus Christ the week the Lord took him home to be, to be with him at 81 years old. So here's Paul. He writes, he is expressing his heart to the elders at Miletus. And he says to you guys, listen, I want to finish the course well. He doesn't know if he has three years or 13 years. He wants to finish right to the end. But now the end has come. And so he can say, I have finished the course. He touched all the bases and all that God had planned for him to do was done. The goal had now become a reality. So like a good soldier, he fought the fight. Like a disciplined athlete, he ran the race. But third, I want you to notice, like a faithful steward, he kept the faith. Now the third image in verse 7 is that of a steward. I've kept the faith. Now throughout this letter, Paul emphasized the importance of guarding the truth, the treasure, the deposit, the gospel, what he calls here the faith, that body of truth that we call the Bible. Paul is affirming that he has been a good steward. He is saying, I have safely preserved the gospel treasure. He never veered from any of the great doctrines that God had given him and the rest of the apostles because Paul's heart was not to please men, but to please the God who saved him. And that's not only an apostle's job, that's a pastor's job. In fact, that's every Christian's job. The work of every Christian is to fight a fight, to run a race, to guard a treasure. It will involve labor, sacrifice, and even danger at times. But Paul had run it right to the end. No regrets, none whatsoever. Now, it wasn't easy. Most of the time, Paul was not popular but he remained faithful as a good steward. So there's Paul looking back. Like a good soldier, he fought the fight. 
Like a disciplined athlete, he ran the race. Like a good steward, he kept the faith. Now, I also want you to notice the Apostle Paul looking ahead. Look now, if you will, in verse 8. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me. He will award it to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, I learned two things immediately from this verse. First, that the apostle's life will be vindicated. Paul had come to the end of his life, and he says, all that remains for me is the crown of righteousness. Now, this word crown, stephanos in the Greek, was not that of the kind of crown a king would wear, a more permanent structure, but actually one of those temporary laurel green wreaths that a Greek or Roman athlete would get for successfully participating in the games. And Paul describes the stephanos, the crown of righteousness, which the righteous judge will give to him. Now, this word righteousness continually falls from Paul's pens in his epistles, and it's the word for salvation, for justification. Paul, though, in this context, is speaking of a righteous vindication, a day when the God of the universe, when God will declare him not guilty. Now, among other things, Paul is making a deliberate contrast here between the sentence he is about to receive from Nero and the vindication he is about to get from God. Nero will declare him guilty and condemn him to death. But there is going to come a magnificent reversal when the Lord, the righteous judge, will declare him not guilty. And because he is the righteous judge who will give the crown of righteousness, though Nero may say guilty, God will say not guilty. Now, let me tell you something. There have been many men and women throughout the church age who've been condemned, criticized, ostracized, detested as hateful, divisive, and everything else because they stood for what was right. And while men may mock them, and while men may say they are wrong, there's going to be a great reversal one day when the Lord, the righteous judge, says not guilty, and he gives to them the crown of righteousness which is an important reminder to me as a pastor that if you please men and displease the Lord, it doesn't matter who you please. But if you please God and displease men, it doesn't matter whom you displease. It's not really what the world thinks. In the end, what will really matter is what God thinks. So first, I'm reminded that this life will be vindicated. Secondly, not only will the apostle's life be vindicated, the apostle's life will be rewarded. He speaks here in verse 8 of the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Now, please note that Paul tells us that God will award it to me on that day, but not only to me, to all who have loved his appearing. Now, under, underline and underscore in your thinking that word award because it speaks of something that is earned, something that is achieved. Now, obviously, Paul is not speaking of the doctrine of salvation, of justification by good deeds. He has already affirmed in this letter when he wrote to Timothy that God is the one who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Yet quite often, liberal preachers take those passages in the Bible that deal with the rewards that God gives to His people, and they use it to teach a false doctrine of salvation by good deeds. But let me remind you, it's very easy to distinguish those passages that deal with reward and those passages that deal with salvation if you will simply remember four things. First, remember that salvation is always spoken of as a free gift. 
for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation is by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, not as a reward for all the good things you've done. And so salvation is spoken of as a free gift, whereas rewards are earned by our works. They're given in response to our faithfulness. Jesus said, And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. So rewards are work. Third, remember that salvation typically is spoken of as a present possession. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he who believes has right now eternal life. It is something I can possess today, whereas by contrast, rewards are described as a future attainment. And so in our text, in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. And the rewards in the Bible are pictured as crowns. Now, the function of crowns will not to be to exalt self. And so God very wisely uses this word of a very temporary crown, the Stephanos, because it's not something you continually wear on your head. And so in Revelation, the fourth chapter, we find the 24 elders who are represented of the living church and they take their crowns and they put them at the feet of Jesus Christ and worship to him. Now there are five crowns that are spoken of in the Bible. The Apostle Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 9 the imperishable crown which are given to those who daily will say no to their sinful desires, who will crucify the sin nature in regards to its loss. God will reward Christians for saying no to sin. It's called the imperishable crown. He writes to the church at Thessalonica, and he speaks there of the crown of exultation or the crown of rejoicing. And this is given to those in the context who win souls for Jesus Christ. You know, God rewards those who are involved in the process of winning souls to Christ, you say, I've never seen anyone come to Christ. Have you tried? Are you trying? Are you attempting to bring people to the Savior? God, if you will just be available, will use you in extraordinary ways. You may be a person in the process of someone's salvation, but are you attempting to win souls to Christ? God rewards those with the crown of rejoicing, those who seek to win people to Christ. And there's the crown of life. James speaks of this in James chapter 1. It's given to those who choose to consider the trials of life as joy. Consider it all joy, my brethren, not if, but when you encounter various trials. God will give the crown of life to those who endure joyfully the trials of life. What a testimony they are. Then Peter speaks of the crown of glory. This is given to the pastor who feeds the flock. And really, by extension, it's given to all of us who are involved in feeding the people of God because by this time, you, all of you, ought to be at someday teachers where you can help feed other people and God rewards for that. And finally, in this passage this morning, he speaks of the crown of righteousness and it's given to those who love his appearing. Now, in the New Testament, an incentive for faithfulness and righteous living is continually linked to the fact that Jesus is coming back. And Paul loved his appearing, and it motivated him to live righteously to serve the Lord. And of course, it was his righteous living that vindicated his life, and that demonstrated his love for Jesus Christ. Why did he love his appearing? Because he loved Jesus Christ. Now, he speaks here of loving his appearing. Notice what he does not speak of. 
He does not talk about whether you love discussing the timetables and the prophetic calendar and how it's going to unfold. Neither does he say that he rewards you for a particular view that you may adopt, be it pre-mid or post-tribulationalism. No, the real issue is, do you love his appearing because you love him? Do you ever tell him, Lord Jesus, I just love you. I love you. I'm so grateful for who you are and what you've done for me. Paul says there's a crown for those who love his appearing, and I want to have that crown. Here's Paul condemned, sitting in a Roman jail. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. His lifeblood is about ready to be poured out as a drink offering. His little boat is about ready to set sail. He's eagerly awaiting his crown. And these are motivations to Timothy to preach the word. Now, I find it tremendously moving that our God is a God of history, that God works in time and space from generation to generation. And Paul is seeking to take the gospel torch to pass it on to Timothy, that he might pass it on to faithful men who in turn can teach others. And Christians have done that all these centuries so that you and I are here today as believers in Jesus Christ because of those who have gone before us who have passed the gospel torch. So here's the Apostle Paul looking back. Here's the Apostle Paul looking ahead. Finally, I want you to notice the Apostle Paul looking around. Now, please remember that throughout this chapter, Paul has been giving strong motivations for Timothy to preach the word. He opened by reminding him that he is charging him and the presence of God Almighty in Jesus Christ. That ought to be enough to motivate anyone to preach the gospel, that God has charged us and the one who charged us is the one to whom someday we will give an account. But he doesn't stop there. He gives him a second motivation in verse 3. Preach the word. Why? Because a day is coming when men won't want to hear it. And that's all the more reason for you to preach the word. Then he gives him a third motivation. Preach the word, Timothy, because my death is imminent. My ministry is about over. And now he's going to give him a fourth motivation to preach the word by illustrating how he is currently doing it, even there in that prison in Rome. For Paul preached the gospel, not simply during his 30-year ministry, but even as a prisoner there in Rome. In verse 17, he tells us, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. Paul is speaking to Timothy about that court trial when he was in that place packed with pagans, and he presented the gospel truth of Jesus Christ. And so he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, what I am asking you to do, what I am telling you to do, I have done. What I have practiced, I am preaching to you. And now in the remaining verses, he gives us the context in which he, does, he did this. He brings us right into his present predicament where he's at. Paul, although he had finished the course, although he was awaiting his crown, he is still human with ordinary human needs. And so in the rest of the chapter, he expresses his plight in prison, in particular how he had been opposed, how he had been deserted, and how he had been left abandoned. Have you ever felt isolated and lonely for the cause of Christ? Then you're not alone because Paul knew that pain. And so he gives us here three factors that contributed 
to his isolation. In verses 9 to 13, he describes how he had been separated from his friends. In verses 14 and 15, he describes how he had been opposed by Alexander the coppersmith. And finally, in verses 16 and following, he informs us how he had been unsupported at his first defense. So first, Paul had been separated from his friends. Look now in verse 9. He says to Timothy, make every effort, every effort to come to me soon. He's hoping to see Timothy. He longs for fellowship with his son in the faith. It's lonely in that prison. In fact, he says in verse 10, as he gives us the explanation, because Demas, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, you know that had to have been painful for the apostle because Demas, if you remember, was long had a long association with the Apostle Paul along with Luke. In fact, in both the books of Colossians and Philemon, he's portrayed and called one of Paul's faithful fellow workers. But unfortunately, he took his eyes off the Lord. And so instead of loving his appearing, he loved this present world. Now, the specifics are not mentioned, but you can probably guess to be associated with Paul was to be associated with Nero's execution. And this man, loving this world so much, probably fearing the persecution that Nero would bring on him, he hightailed to Thessalonica. That's a long way away. Add to that, not only did Demas desert him, we read Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Now, Crescens, whose name does not appear anywhere else in the New Testament, is linked closely here, inseparably, with a Greek word to Titus. So whatever one did, the other did. It was good. And so Crescens obviously went to Galatia to serve the Lord. And Titus, no doubt, had completed his ministry assignment there on the island of Crete. And so now he was called to minister in Dalmatia there on the eastern Adriatic coast. And so it's quiet. Demas hightailed it out. Crescens and Titus are gone. And according to verse 11, only one of his teammates is left. Only Luke is with me. Good old Dr. Luke, his personal physician, stayed with him right to the end. So Timothy, while you're on your way here, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Remember Mark? He's also called John Mark. He's the one who wrote the third gospel in the New Testament. Paul took him on the first missionary journey. It got tough, and so he ran home to Mama. The second missionary journey came. Paul said, we're not taking Mark. Barnabas said, we got to take Mark. We're not taking him. We've got to. We're not. We've got to. And so instead of having one missionary journey, they had two. Barnabas took Mark because Barnabas was concerned with the worker. Paul took Timothy because he was concerned with the work. But because largely of Barnabas' ministry, Barnabas the encourager, he built into John Mark... As you read in later letters, he became a good man. And here in this final letter, Paul calls him a useful servant of Christ. Verse 12. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Now this man is mentioned twice over in Paul's epistles. In both Ephesians and Colossians, we read, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord. He was a good brother. And now he's going to Ephesus, presumably to take the letter that Paul is writing, but also to take Timothy's place so Timothy can come here to Rome and meet Paul's needs and fellowship with him. 
So here are four intimate and trusted friends whom Paul misses, three of whom have been called into the Lord's work and one who ran away. And then he adds something in verse 13 that is quite revealing. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. He asked first for his cloak to keep warm because fall has come upon the city of Rome. Winter is not far away. And those stone prisons were cold places in which to live. And he uses a very technical term for the word cloak. It was used of a large sleeveless outer garment that had just a, a hole cut in the middle for your head. And it was a very expensive garment in the first century. A lot of people could not afford them. But God always takes care of his man. And here's uh, Paul. And he doesn't tell Luke to go out and buy him another one because they are expensive. But he asked Timothy to bring it with him because it was getting cold. In addition, there were certain books that Paul had in his library that he wanted Timothy to bring. But then he adds, especially the parchments, clearly a reference to the Scriptures. So here's Paul asking for three things. Timothy, you come. I want your fellowship. Secondly, bring the cloak because I need to keep warm. And thirdly, bring the books and especially the parchments because I want to keep occupied. And of course, here's Paul who most of all, he yearns to see Timothy just one more time before he dies. He's already said in verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. And then he adds in verse 21, make every effort to come to me before winter. Because if Timothy has ever to see the Apostle Paul again alive, he must come soon. He must become before winter because when winter comes, navigation becomes impossible. Paul loved this brother in Christ. He already wrote in chapter 1 that he longed to see him. So on the one hand, he longed to see Christ, but on the other hand, he longed to see Timothy. Sometimes you meet these super spiritual saints who claim, oh, they never feel lonely. All they need is Jesus. They don't need anybody else. They don't need any friends. Listen, quite often human friends are God's provision to us. Paul wrote in another letter that God, God sent Titus to come and comfort me in my depression both the fellowship of Christ that he has spoken of in verse 7, 17, not to mention the appearing that he is longing for, was very important to Paul, but so weren't human friends. Those were not a substitute for the apostle. He obtained help from the Lord both directly and indirectly. He didn't despise the use of means that God gives, nor should we. When our spirit is lonely, we need friends. When our body is cold, we need clothes. When our mind is unoccupied, we need books, especially the Scriptures. God created us with certain human needs. We are, as the writer says, but dust in God's sight. And we cannot deny our human frailty, and so Paul does not. So here's Paul, separated from his friends. But beginning in verse 14, we also see that Paul has been opposed by Alexander the coppersmith. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Now, Alexander was a common name in the first century, and it appears a number of times in the New Testament. We don't know whether this is the same Alexander that's mentioned in Acts chapter 19. There's really no value in conjecturing about it. 
Though I think we can firmly say that this is a different Alexander than the one Paul wrote about in his first epistle. Because when he describes that first Alexander who had been shipwrecked in the faith, he describes him in terms of discipline because he's a believer, one whom he's going to deliver over to Satan that he might be disciplined, that as he wrote in 2 Corinthians, his spirit might be saved in the day of judgment. But when he speaks of this Alexander, by the Spirit of God, he uses terms of wrath and punishment, and God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. Now, precisely how he did him much harm, we're not told. In either case, he says, the Lord will repay him according to his needs. Now, it's not clear in the Old English. It almost comes across like a desire or a wish in the King James. But understand, this is not a wish or a desire. Paul is not being vindictive. He recognizes, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But by the Spirit of God, he simply is stating a fact, a prediction that would come true, that God will deal with this man, that God will ultimately punish him. In fact, Paul's not concerned about what this man has done to him as he is about Timothy and especially the message. Look at verse 15. He warns Timothy, be on your guard against yourself. That's his concern for Timothy. For he, Alexander, vigorously opposed our teaching. That's his concern for the message these two men preached. He knows that this man is dangerous and he will seek to undermine Timothy in his preaching of the gospel truth. So here's Paul, separated from his friends, opposed by his enemies. Third, I want you to notice that Paul is unsupported in his first defense. He's unsupported at his first defense. He writes in verse 16, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. When Paul had his first defense, the prelim preliminary investigation that the Roman government allowed a Roman citizen in which to establish their innocence, no one was there to support him. Under Roman law, as a Roman citizen, he had the right to call witnesses who had vouched for his whereabouts and for his behavior. But no one came to speak for Paul. Now, we're not told precisely what charges they made against Paul. But we know from Tacitus and Pliny and other contemporary writers of the day of the kind of charges they continually and habitually leveled against Christians. Sometimes it was a charge against atheism. Because Christians would not embrace all of the idols that the people of Rome worshipped, especially they would not worship the emperor whom they had been commanded to worship as a god. Or sometimes they were accused of cannibalism because they would talk about eating of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Or sometimes they were just accused of a general hatred towards the government and towards the people because they renounced the passing pleasures of sin, something that the government itself often promoted. But whatever the charge was, whatever it was that was leveled against Paul, no one stood there with him. No one at all. Now, some of his Christian friends could not because they were involved in the Lord's work. But as we learn from chapter 1, others would not because they did not want to be identified with this man who is soon to be executed. Unsupported and left all alone, this undoubtedly was Demas' sin who loved life more than doing what was right. The temptations of this world can be a great distraction as we labor for the master of the world to come. But we cannot forget that this world will all pass away and that the world to come is an eternal one. Will we be like Demas or will we endure like Paul? Will we fight the good fight 
Or will our rewards burn up like wood, hay, and stubble? We pray that this series from 2 Timothy has been an encouragement to you in your walk with the Lord. If so, would you let us know? Just email us at info at searchthescriptures.org or send us a note at Search the Scriptures, P.O. Box 600, Seabrook, South Carolina, 29940. And to listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program 2TM9, entitled Paul's Final Words. Tomorrow, Dr. Berge presents the final message in this series from 2 Timothy. We hope you'll join us when again we search the scriptures.